This morning's scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Good morning and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're very thankful for the privilege that we have to be together today to worship God and to think on things which are spiritual in nature. We're going to be looking today at the fifth chapter of Isaiah. I would encourage you to look with me at Isaiah chapter 5. Here we have a parable that is presented unto us by Isaiah the prophet, and it really has to do with God's people, particularly the nation of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we want to look at this particular parable and think for a few moments about the theme on the brink of disaster. In looking at Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet is writing some 750 years before Jesus would ultimately make his entrance into the world. But he points to some dark days in the history of Israel. When you look at the nation of Israel, God had abundantly blessed them, very much like our country today. We think about all of the blessings and favors that God has so abundantly bestowed on us as a nation of people. And yet, unfortunately, Israel turned their back on Almighty God. We could ask the question today, what about the state of our nation? Have we, like Israel of old, turned a deaf ear to the Word of God? In looking at Isaiah chapter 5, the first thing that the prophet does, he addresses the care, the favor that God had bestowed on these people. In verse 1, he begins by stating that God is the one who established them. He said, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. He begins by talking about how the Lord had established them, and then he moves from that to talk about his expectations of them. In verse, well, in verse 2, the latter part, he said, He expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes, that is, poisonous grapes. And you can go back and look at the history of Israel and you can see how they became an idolatrous nation. They began to err from the commands of Almighty God and thus they brought upon themselves untold 
miseries. And then he makes an evaluation of them in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth grapes, good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16, God talked about the reception of the children of Israel to His prophets, to His messengers of old. And in verse 16, He said, They mocked My messengers. They despised My word. He said, They scoffed at My prophets until the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, till there was no remedy. You think about people that had become so spiritually bankrupt that God, in effect, is saying there is no remedy. There is no bomb to help this nation. Now, you and I, we look around and we think about all of the tremendous blessings that God has lavished upon us as a nation of people. And I believe that all of us here today, we are extremely grateful, thankful for the abundance of the blessings that God has bestowed on us. If you look back at the children of Israel, you could have asked the question, was God pleased with the state they found themselves in? Was God pleased with how they had treated Him? Equally so, we might ask the question, when God looks upon this country, what do you think His reactions are? Now I understand that we are not we are not a nation like Israel in the from the vantage point that they were a theocracy. But nonetheless, God has truly lavished upon us great blessings. And we have become a cradle into which New Testament Christianity has flourished in days gone by. But as a whole, when God looks upon this nation, what do you think his observations are? Now let's move from that and think in the second place of the characteristics of Israel. And this has to do with their features. In other words, when God looked at the nation of Israel, when he looked at the southern kingdom, what did he see? When God looks at our nation today, what does he see? If God were to sum up the spiritual state of America, what would he say? What would he write down? What would be his assessment? Well, listen to the assessment offered by Isaiah concerning the state, the spiritual state of the nation. First of all, let me just make this observation. He begins by offering a series of woes. And these woes strike at the heart of their spiritual indifference and problems. The first woe has to do with their materialism or their covetousness. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant, 
For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. The problem at this particular juncture in their history, they had given themselves over to materialism, to covetousness. And that covetousness or that material state of mind was literally choking the spiritual life out of this nation. Now here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 9, the apostle Paul said, But they that are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Is it not the case that in our country today, that even though God has lavished upon us unbelievable prosperity, we have, we have enjoyed a wave of, of economic prosperity, unrivaled by many peoples. And yet, has that prosperity sapped the life out of our spirituality? Jesus said, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. I think we could make the case that much of the economic unrest and the sagging economy of our day and time is due in large part to covetousness on the part of many people. You look around and see people who are literally trying to live beyond their means. They have dug themselves into a hole and now they have difficulty climbing out. And that's, and that's the case from Wall Street to Main Street. People are choosing to live above their economic means. And we are paying a terrible price. The greed that is so characteristic of Wall Street and of corporate America. You tell me. Is materialism robbing this nation of peace? But then secondly... He pronounces a woe on their merriment. And really what he's going to address is their carousals and their drinking and their debauchery. Here were people that were plunging into a life characterized by pleasure. In other words, that's what their lives were all about. What is it that's going to make me happy? What is it that's going to gratify my innate desires? And so look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue, who continue until night, till wine inflames them, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute, and wine are in their feast. Now listen to him. But they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of His hands. 
It's possible that people can become so consumed by pleasure. What makes them happy? This idea of selfishness. That they literally expunge God from their lives. It's all about me. Is it not the case that in our country today, that people are seeking to the best of their abilities to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, whatever the cost. It's happening every day in America. Paul talks about those in 2 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 4, who were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I know people have become caught up in this way of life. And sadly, there are many in the church that given the choice between playing golf on Sunday or coming to worship or honoring the God of heaven on the first day of the week, they'll go to a ball game or they'll go to the lake or they will choose some other form of recreation, some other kind of outlet. It was literally destroying the spirituality of God's people. God had been very gracious and very good to these people. But they had turned their backs on Him. Look at how much of our society today centers around this idea of partying and pleasure. It's amazing to me that there are whole television shows dedicated to the purpose of, of just emphasizing the partying and this hedonistic spirit of our generation. Look at the number of people who are destroying their lives with drugs and alcohol. There's a whole program dedicated to intervention. There are young people today who are on crack and who are on meth. And they tell me that meth is such a strong drug that if a person ever tries it, that the high is so unparalleled, it's almost impossible to get people off of it. That's what people are living for. And that's why as, as a congregation of people, we have to teach our young people, stay away from these things. They will destroy you. They were destroying the nation of Israel. Solomon had said in Proverbs chapter 20 at verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Here is God saying, this is the way you ought to live. That is a life of abstinence. And yet they were just consuming themselves with drunkenness, intoxicating beverages, debauchery. A third woe, verse 18. This is directed to their mockery. And the idea here is they had become calloused, indifferent. Literally, they were defiant toward God. You ever heard somebody talk about turning their nose up at a certain thing or a certain person? Well, these people were turning their noses up at the Lord. And so listen to him in verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. 
that say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. I think about people dragging their sins behind them. And there are people that have become so calloused in their sinful way of life that they literally cannot be reached. There are people today that have become defiant towards God. You just think about what the writer said back in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16, when he said, they mocked my messengers. He said, they despised my word. They scoffed at my prophets. Here is God, because of the graciousness and goodness of his heart, sending these prophets to them. His hope, his anticipation is that they will hear the word of God, that it will fall on an honest and a good heart and ultimately bring forth fruit, that it will make them better people, bring them to repentance, turn them back. And what did they do? They just chose to turn a deaf ear to the word of God. Now in our country today, you let somebody stand up and start speaking out about certain immoralities in our country and you'll see people that will demonstrate a very defiant position towards the word of God they mock it Solomon said in Proverbs 14 verse 9 fools make a mock at sin it's become sport to them but also look, if you would, at verse 20. Here is another woe pronounced upon God's people. This has to do with their misplaced values. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, when you look at our society today, when you look at our country, how many people do you think in America have in their home at least one copy of what we call the Bible, the Word of God? I suspect that there was a day and time when just about every American family had at least one copy of the Bible. Now, I doubt that's the case today because we have become a very pluralistic society. And we have embraced a number of philosophies that are anti-God and they are anti-Christian. There are any number of philosophies and religions that have made their way into this country that are other than Christianity. And because of that, what's happened? Well, misplaced values. A confusion over simple things like right and wrong. Good and evil. Truth and error. When I was growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I went to a public school. And in the public elementary school that I attended, we had Bible class every week. As a matter of fact, when we got to the sixth grade, we received a copy of the Bible. My, how times have changed. Let me tell you what, this is not the country 
that it once was. It's not the country that you and I knew back in the 60s and 70s. It's changed that radically. And we have people today, as Isaiah said in the long ago, they're calling evil good. Now I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to mention it again because I think it's at the taproot. It is, a, it is one of the things that is burning or searing a hole in the spirituality of our nation today. The gay movement. It is not the gay movement. It is the homosexual movement. And recently there has been a great deal of attention given to the homosexual movement in the city of Memphis. And there are people today that are parading this movement. As a matter of fact, I saw out in California where they struck down Proposition 8 and many of the people, many of the celebrities in Hollywood were decrying the fact that those who would engage in homosexual behavior could not enjoy matrimony. And I know that there are people today that look at this movement and they think it may be a passing fad. I'm here to tell you it's here to stay. Sadly, these people are out of the closet and they are working the politicians in Washington. And they're taking something that is an ungodly, perverse lifestyle and they're trying to make it, quote unquote, good in the eyes of the American people. Now I know that there have been people that have appealed to the book of, Le of Leviticus and in the commercial appeal in the editorial section there have been people that have spoken out against those who have used Leviticus because they're basically saying if you're going to use that portion of the law, then why not other portions of the law? Well, let me just tell you this. I don't need the Old Testament to tell me that homosexuality is wrong. I've got the New Testament. And the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that homosexuals, listen to him, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. I don't care what anybody in Washington says. I don't care what any mayor, any governor, any senator, or any congressman may say. The word of God stands true. The psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, 89. God's word will not change. This world may come to a crashing halt, but the Word of God will stand true. And I tell you what, the politicians in Washington better wake up. Because one day they're going to stand before Almighty God, and I promise you they will give an account of this. They will give an account to God for what is written in this book and the things that they are legislating. They may think they won't, but I can assure you, I can promise you, they will. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken, listen to him, the same shall judge him in the last day. The word of God is true. And then we think about those today who want to talk about having some type of chemical dependency. Or they want to talk about how they have some type of drinking disorder. Listen, here's what the Bible says. They are drunkards. They're drunkards. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We talk about people who are living out of wedlock with one another. Oh, they're just living together. They've set up shop together. Here's what the Bible says. They're fornicators. They're adulterers. Now, that's not politically correct, and that's not what people in our society want to hear, but I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says. And people are taking that which is evil, and they're parading it as if it's good. We better wake up. And then finally, in verse 21, the final woe. Actually, there's one more, but we'll stop at verse 21. Their mentality. They were cultivating this spirit of intellectualism. And so listen to him, if you would, in verse 20. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, prudent in their own sight. Look around in our society today. Look at the technological advancements that have been made in our world, in this country. Are we better off today, technologically, than we were a hundred years ago? Well, all of us would agree that we are. Look at many of the universities that have been built. Some of those universities, some of the finest universities in our land were built in an effort to train people in the Word of God. And now those very universities are so far removed from God and His Word, it's unbelievable. Here's what Paul said. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1 verse 22. Paul talks about those in 2 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 7 who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, we know a lot in our society. And we have our graduate degrees and our Ph.D. degrees and our M.D. degrees and on and on and on. But here's the question. Do we as a society, as a nation of people, know where we came from. I'll tell you where we came from. We came from God, Genesis chapter 1. Do we know what we're doing here? I can tell you what we're, do, we're supposed to be doing here. We are to fear God and keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12 at verse 13. Where are we going? I can tell you where we're going. We are headed to eternity. And the Bible says that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. That's what the Word of God says. And so really, the question is, the nation of Israel, what kind of future did they have? Very quickly, our time is gone. They would be chastened. Their fate set forth in verse 13. Therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished. Their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore Sheol, the grave, has enlarged itself, opened its mouth beyond measure. The idea of the picture here is that they'll be swallowed up in captivity. That's exactly what happened. Back in verse 5, and now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Here's what God said, I'll take away its hedge, it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Captivity was looming before them. I do not know what the fate of our country is. I hope and pray that God will continue to bless us as a nation of people. But I know one thing. Nations come and they go. They rise and they fall. 
the nation of Israel, they were on the brink of disaster. As a nation of people, we might ask the question, are we on the brink of disaster? I hope not. I know what the answer is. The answer is, turn back to God. The Bible says, an account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. 2 Peter 3, verse 15. God is interested in us individually and nationally. What God wants is for us as people, as human beings, to read His Word, to develop an appreciation for it, and to obey it. To live according to His precepts. So what are we going to do? Well, the Bible says we have to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We have to be a voice for right. We have to be the conscience, if you please, of this nation. We have to tell people what's right and wrong because obviously there are a lot of people in our world, they don't know. And so it's up to us. Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. Could we encourage you to come to Christ? Could we encourage you to put the Lord Jesus Christ on in New Testament baptism? The Bible says... In Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. When you do that, the Lord will add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. And if you'll live faithfully, the promise is the crown of life. If you're unfaithful to His cause, could we encourage you to come home, knowing that God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Come now as we stand and sing.